I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's the show and the podcast where readers meet writers. It's good to have you listening today. Writer Carol Dunbar has returned to the northern Midwest for her second novel. And I think she has a particular gift for capturing the rhythms of the seasons, the solitude and the quietness in the rural Northland. Listen to how Mallory, her central character, sees the forest on a morning walk. All growing up, the woods had been her safe haven, a quiet place where she could go to recover some part of herself. She noticed the way nature handled adversity, how the trees bent under the weight of snow, making graceful arches and boughs, how the little birds fluffed up and huddled in the brutal cold. Carol Dunbar is the author of The Net Beneath Us, which I've recommended to friends many times. Her new novel is titled A Winter's Rhyme, and she joins us this morning from the Twin Ports area. Carol, welcome to the show. I can't believe this is the first time we're talking, but I feel like you are a friend because I've been reading what you've written. So welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you so much, Carrie. It is absolute pleasure to be here. So uh, ever since a National Geographic photographer um, described for me the the imprint of his childhood landscape on his imagination, I've you know I've been really interested in how that works for writers. I know you moved around a lot as a kid, and I wondered if those landscapes, very different from where you're living now, sharpened and shaped the way you see the place you live right now? That's a cool question. I used to think that because I was from nowhere, I couldn't write about anywhere. And it was actually my writing group who taught me that it was because I wasn't from the area that they loved the way I saw it. They loved the way I talked about it and described it. And, um, and now I've embraced the fact that uh, I, uh, I, I have new eyes, maybe, kind of like the tourist mindset, you know, when you visit a place that you've never been to before, everything is cool and awesome, and then you go home, and everything is normal and boring. But if someone came to visit your home, they would think it was cool and awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So, yes, I, I, do, I do feel that the memories I have of the places I've been have sharpened in my mind. I look forward to revisiting them through uh, my characters in fiction. I, I, in future novels, I do want to travel to other places and visit other climates. But right now, I'm really enjoying writing about the North Woods. What I sense is that your characters see their surroundings, you know, not in a romanticized way. This is not, I mean, your your language is beautiful, but I don't think of it as um, that you're trying to put a lot of poetry to the page when we're, when we're in the point of view of the character. But I'm interested in how you think that through, um, you know, the character's eyes, how the character is perceiving their surroundings and what that means for the way they're figuring out a problem or, or solving mm. a dilemma or interacting in a relationship. Yeah, I, I am very interested in that. I'm very interested in, in what nature can teach us about unraveling those knots of duress inside. Um, 
when I was early on, when I was trying to study uh, third person and psychic distance, which is how close you get inside a character's head, Mm -hmm. I came across a writing exercise by John Gardner, where he said the assignment was to describe a barn in a field from the point of view of a boy whose father has just died. Oh my gosh, wow. But do not talk about the father and do not mention death. And, and that, that, that was when I understood how to write surroundings through a character's eyes. So this, presumably in this exercise, is a boy whose perceptions are, of course, deeply shaped by the loss and the mourning, and he's going to see the world around him through that loss. And yet you cannot be explicit in any way about what he has lost. So what did you do? I actually didn't do the exercise (laughs) 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 because because I understood it. So I I applied it immediately to The Net Beneath Us, which is the novel I was working at the time. And my main character, Elsa, has lost her husband. And so it it was an immediate fit for me. It was immediately... Mm. I understood what I needed to do with her and how the place that she had come to love, this house where they were building, you know, together, how that had was changing for her. Everywhere she looked, it, it looked different to her. Suddenly she was so deeply afraid. And 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 it was that exercise that, that was the key that taught me how to do that. It, tell me what psychic, the, the phrase you used was psychic, distance, how you learn to, what, create that in a character? What is that? What does that mean? Yeah, psychic distance is a cool term. It makes me sound very fancy, but <laughs> it's it's just how uh, near or far you are from being right inside the character's head. So you might be perched on their shoulder, but you're not in their head, Right. Or you might be a little, like, maybe three feet behind their head. Or you might be up in a drone flying in the sky and you're like, you know, Mr. Brown is walking down the street and you're observing that way. So what you do, and and it all depends on the voice of of the story. Every Mm -hmm. story has its own voice. So you have to figure that out. And what I learned with the Net Beneath Us is that I needed to be agile with psychic distance because sometimes I needed to zoom out Mm -hmm. where I'm most comfortable is right inside the head. And I think that's because of my training, um, my background um, in theater. I love being right inside the head, but as a novelist, I had to learn how to get out of the head and pull back sometimes so that I could describe other things and and do other things. You know, let me ask you about the, the, uh, theater training and how that's influenced what you've just described. I mean, is there, uh, so I've never acted on a stage. Is there, mm. um, is there an ability ever to, in the midst of a performance, do that kind of zoom out? Or are you just by necessity in the head of the character that you're performing? I think you would be great on stage. You have oh. a remarkable voice. Oh. Well, yeah, but it's all the other stuff you have to be able to do, Carol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, 
I uh, was just telling some friends of mine, um, her daughter's auditioning for the Crucible, and I, I did the Crucible at Park Square Theater in Minneapolis. Uh, we had a great run there, and I had a moment during uh, the run of the show, and this is after it had been it had opened, and it was doing well, and it had played several. You know, we were several shows in. We were probably a month in to the run. And it was, I was on stage, I was Abigail, I was in an intense scene where we're crying out, we're, we're accusing different people in the town of mm -hmm. being witches. Mm -hmm. So it's this incredibly intense emotional scene. And underneath my skirt, my pantaloons are coming down. <laughs> <laughs> Something had broke on the waistband. <laughs> and so... So I did. I, I kind of came out of my body a little bit. I, I was still saying my lines and moving and doing all the blocking, but I had to change the blocking because I had to go behind the bed and I had to kind of gracefully get out of my pantaloons and oh kick gosh. them under the bed and then come back out to the middle of the stage and finish finish accusing everybody. So, <laughs> But that's something you did by necessity. What, what I mean, is there a... Is this a technique to be able to zoom in and out of perspective when you're on when you're in performance like that? Well, I, my experience being an actor is that all all you care about is your main character. Yeah. To every actor, even if you have one line, the play is about you, and and even if you only say one line, you know all the other things that that person has said that day and what they were thinking about and what they had for breakfast because wow. actors are obsessive that way. And, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're the sun that everybody moves around. <laughs> I, I love that, Carol. I love that if you have one line, the play's about you. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, that, that was how I approached it. I was a bit intense. I was very into drama. I was very committed, deeply, deeply committed um, and, and to the craft. And I, I, my husband had that ability when he, when I did it, we met in a show, ironically, we were cast as husband and wife. Mm. And one thing that impressed me about this guy was he had the ability to understand what the whole show was about and the role that his character served. He understood how his role served the overall play. Wow. And and I didn't have that at that time. I was, you know, I thought it was all about me. So I had to learn that. That was a skill I had to work on, you know, to understand that. And that's what the novelist does. That's what, and the director too, you know, directors right. have that ability. All right. I want to ask you about something else of this, the switch up in perspective. So I just finished um, Lauren Groff's new novel, mm -hmm. The Vaster Wilds. Yeah, it, oh. it's wonderful, Carol. You'll love it. But she does that. You know, it's set in um, the early 17th century in America in the time of the Jamestown colony. And we are in the we are deeply in the head and the perspective of the central character who mm. is essentially on the run uh, across this untouched area of America and yet every now and then she she gives us foreknowledge or she gives us as you kind of said the bird's eye view mm. and in reading this I realized 
I've grown a lot more comfortable with that. I used to find that really jarring. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I want to be surrounded by this character's perspective. Don't jar me out of that. And yet, in the hands of a master writer like Lauren or you or you know the other novelists we read, you can you can do this. And I guess I, I want to understand how you gain the confidence to pull off something like that. I absolutely admire Lauren Groff and her writing. I I have Fates and Furies on my shelf, and I take it off and read the opening of that novel <laughs> like once a week. It's so <laughs> really, oh my god, it's so masterful because she's she's doing something in that novel that we you know with the brackets that I. I don't know if anyone has ever done that before, but she has kind of taken the third person to, it's not another level. It's just third person omniscient where there's the authorial character where the, there's the person telling the story has an attitude toward the story. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Great way to describe it. And that, that's another level, Carrie, that I, I am, I am dabbling in, but I haven't truly, I, I, you know, with a winter's rhyme, I really worked hard to find the right voice to tell this story. Mm-hmm. And it, it was something I thought a lot about um, because the authorial voice has an attitude towards the material, but I don't ever, but this is Mallory's story, a winter's rhyme. It's very much her story. So how do you balance what the character needs to say with what the author's trying to do to craft a story? It's it's kind of a it for me it turned into a, a bit of a wrestling match because I was trying to figure out how to do it. Um, but I'm still learning, and I study writers like Lauren Groff because she has mastered that, and Anne Patchett is another master of that, where she can drop into any character's head at any time and then kind of move out. And it's not jarring. It really does take a master to have those seamless transitions. Is it true, do I remember this right, that Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic was also helpful for you in (laughs) discovering the voice for Winter's Rhyme? Yes, yes, I wrote about that. Yes. Um, I love the idea that she purports in in, in her that book about creativity that ideas are out there like ripe fruit on trees you know and you just you can pick them but she also asserts that if you don't do service to your idea it's going to go find somebody else that's right i know (laughs) i I, I was curious about what you thought about that because you know she i mean she says ideas have, have agency and if they're ignored as you've noted they're going somewhere else do you believe that (laughs) I I think with me and belief, if I find it useful and helpful, then, you know, I, I might adopt it. And I, I find that belief kind of helpful because it motivates me to, I have personally an agreement with my muse. And by that, I mean the place where ideas come from, because I don't know where they come from. It's it doesn't feel like it's just me. It feels a little bit bigger than that. But I don't I don't want to get too woo woo or grandiose. But they come from places, and 
I need to acknowledge that I've heard them. And so I have a pact with my muse that if they send me a good idea, if I get a great idea, I'm going to, I'm going to write it down. Um, and, uh, I, I try to keep my agreements so that the ideas will keep flowing, that they'll keep happening, that the channel will stay open. I never want that to shut down. Right. So I don't know if that's writer superstition or not, but it's an interesting concept. And my ideas have definitely been very patient with me because my first book took me 12 years, which is a really a long time for an idea to hang around you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, but you were working it and the muse knew I, that, I assume. <laughs> I was, I was. I had notebooks, yes. <laughs> I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation this morning with Carol Dunbar. You hear her referring to The Net Beneath Us. That was the first novel. And she's out with her brand new novel titled A Winter's Rhyme. Um, one more question about this. You have, I think somewhere you described the arrival of this idea for A Winter's Rhyme as, quote, whole and perfect as an egg. Uh, run with that for a minute. Tell me about that. What's it feel like? What's it sound like? I mean, what happened? I knew the story. I knew the whole plot. With my first novel, I kept having to start the engine of my plot like a generator. It kept conking out on me. But with this book, like it landed and I saw it and I understood how it would start and how it would run. And I understood the gasoline that was going to power it all the way through. And I say it like that, it, that it was like an egg because it was this life-giving force and it had a center that glowed bright as ever. And that that glowing, burning brightness was this personal issue that I had that I had never looked at. It was a time in my early 20s that I went through that was a really rough patch, and I had never unraveled it. I had never talked about it. I had never investigated it. And I knew when that idea hit, that this story would be the vehicle to really get down in there and, and, and unpack that and look at what that was all about. Do you, do you think you had a sense that someday you would, you know, plumb the the darker places that, you know, these memories and understanding of what had happened in your early 20s, you'd get there someday? Or do you think you'd pack that away? a bit and here it was unexpectedly it it was unexpectedly because it wasn't i didn't necessarily i wasn't eager to unpack it. it it was sort of like you know this thing that that i carried around that i was comfortable with you know i was comfortable with it being there but I, I didn't necessarily want to unpack it, and it didn't feel like I needed to unpack it. But when that story, when this story arrived, I knew it was the place where I could do that safely. Mm -hmm. And it really took me to unexpected places. I really didn't expect to have the kinds of profound realizations that I had when working on this book. Carol, I think that's why the reluctance of Mallory, the central character, and we'll talk about her in just a minute. But I think that's why that reluctance reads so true. I, and I, you know, I, I never assume that 
the story I'm reading on the page has any kind of autobiographical um, you know, meaning in the author's life. But you're telling us that 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 there is there is some kind of a shared perspective here between Mallory and something that you you went through in your early twenties. So do you know what I mean when I say this reluctance for Mallory, it's it's it really builds a lot of tension in the story and it it read true. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's it's kind of this it's a tension. It's mm-hmm. it's it's what she's always pushing against. And I I like the way you described the the shared kind of uh, understanding that mm-hmm. that Mallory and I have. I feel like that's a good way of putting it because her story is one hundred percent fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, her and the character of Mallory is one hundred percent fiction, but we understand each other. I get her. I get her. I really do. And I feel like she allowed me to really look long and hard at some things that were really tough to look at and, and talk about. Um, because it, it's, it's crazy how major things happen in your life and you don't have time to talk about them. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, or they, or with complex trauma, it's an ongoing thing and it's in the past. And how do you unpack it? How do you unpack something that large? It just sort of sits there in the corner, you know? It's it's just too big. What I think is is interesting um, about Mallory when we encounter her, she is simultaneously vulnerable and open and yet so painfully closed off. I mean, you write, um, that winter during her 25th year, something had been let out. Mallory could feel it in her gut, a disturbance that wouldn't go away. And I found that duality really intriguing. I I thought I might ask you to talk about that. The duality between her inner and outer? The vulnerability that she Mm. is feeling and showing, Mm. and yet this really... This is where the reluctance comes in. This really yeah. closed off part of her. Yeah. Okay. I see. Mm-hmm. Yes, she has adopted a a persona that's not true to who she is, mm-hmm. so that she could survive. It was a survival technique, and it was also partly to wanting to be admired by by her father, and she. He valued strength, so she wanted to embody that for him. And she's trying to find ways to be like him and to be who she thinks he wants her to be. But also, the deeper underneath it was it it, it was a survival technique, this mask that she puts on, this outward persona of toughness. Um, and it's really fun to see that come off when she's at work at the uh, gas station store during the overnight scenes. That's when all of a sudden she starts behaving in these goofy ways. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, what is this? It, it was kind of a surprise, but it made perfect sense to me that she has this goofy, sweet, that's who she really is. And she has had to hide that for most of her life. 
to protect herself. Yeah, you know, I also appreciate, and maybe before I ask you this, we should describe kind of where she is in her life. Um, mm. Tell us a bit about how we're encountering Mallory. We're meeting her at a really tough time in her life. Um, she's in a in a bad relationship that, that she doesn't know how to get out of. She's working a, a job that is not living up to her potential. It's, uh, she's working shifts at an overnight gas station store, and she's emotionally volatile. She She's just filled with this anxiety and um, unease. She can't, she's having trouble sleeping. She doesn't understand her symptoms and her beha- behaviors. And so to cope with them, she's just working as much as she can and going on long walks before and after her shift. She's just it feels to her like like the emotions and what she's feeling are too big to be in the container that is her body. Mm-hmm. And and that that feeling is what she's wrestling with and she just doesn't know what to do with that or where that's coming from and um so she's trying to figure that out as 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 the story unfolds and she meets this vulnerable youth. I mean, that that is this situation where, you know, something had been let out. She could feel it in her gut, a disturbance that wouldn't go away. I mean, that that's more than anxiety. That's this, it's a knowledge, right, that she yeah. is going to have to do something with. I Yeah, I think she's picking up on that winter. I started writing this novel, the winter of 2019, which mm-hmm. is, the winter before the pandemic broke out. It was when the government shut down. It was uh, a a kind of a a disturbing time in the news where we were hearing a lot of stories about acts of violence perpetuated on innocent people. The, The one that really hit me was at the Mall of America when a, a child was was thrown off the balcony. Mm. And that that's the the energy what's being let out. That's what she is tapping into this people. She just felt that this thing that was too big for her to contain was also too big for other people to contain and, and it was being let out. And, and, it, and that scared her because she could see herself going too far with it. And she wanted to understand it. You know, as you mentioned that the Mall of America incident in, in the novel somewhere, I think. Am I right mm-hmm. about that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. I, the, other, the other thing, as I listen to you say that, that occurred to me is she's uncomfortable, as I think many of us are, with the idea that, you know, there aren't going to be answers for some of this. We're just, we're never really going to know why. And I think a lot of us Mm -hmm. have gotten accustomed to having to live with that. It's, and boy, that is difficult, not just with violence, but, but since that's what we're talking about with the why, I mean, I'm struck by the fact when I hear a news story about um, the latest shooting, you know, often the newscaster will say, uh, a motive is not known. And I'm to the point now where I think it will never matter 
what the, I mean, it will never answer all the questions, even if we know what the motive is. Mm. I guess, am I going too far afield from Mallory's? No. Yeah, go ahead. No, not at all. That, that was one of the things that um, I uncovered in the research I did. There was, there was a draft when I had statistics hmm. in the back of the book. And one of the statistics that I uncovered was that over 50% of mass shootings are the continuation of violence in the home. Wow. And there are a lot of statistics that link, especially with men, you know, the percentages are much higher, the percentage of men in prison, boys, uh, juvenile problems, the majority of them can be traced to adverse experiences in the home. And that's what I really wanted to get to the root of for myself personally. I wanted to understand how that affects a young developing mind. Mm -hmm. What does it do? And it literally rewires the brain and affects the central nervous system. The biology of, of trauma is what was most astonishing to me because we have this erroneous idea that trauma is something we can get over the way we get over a bad breakup, right? Mm -hmm. That, that we can mentally move ourselves on, but there's a biological component to it where your, your fight or flight gets triggered. And when that happens, you get sent places, your body does, your heart's increased you're, you're sweaty all over, your blood is racing, uh, you feel different. And, you, and, you, and if you're not aware of your triggers, and if you don't understand the biology of fight or flight, then you're going to be unconscious to it, and you won't understand what, what's going on, and your behavior will change. You have some um, very vivid descriptions of Mallory's experience, I guess of what I would call blackout rage, driven mm -hmm. driven by what you've just described, these triggers and the PTSD that she's living with. But, you know, <laughs> after the second or third um, scene of this, I I wondered how you really understood what that's like to experience when I first started writing, I didn't know I was writing about PTSD. Hmm. I didn't know I was writing about trauma. I started with the behaviors. Mm -hmm. I started with the symptoms. And I was just trying to explain what it felt like. I just wanted people to understand what blackout rage, what that felt like. Like what from inside somebody's head, not you know, so far gone that they aren't aware that they don't want it to happen. Right. But an awareness, an experience of it. I wanted to, to capture that. And, and that's why I re kept returning to it. And it's interesting to me because I didn't know, even, even as I was writing those scenes, that that was PTSD until later, late, late, late in the drafting process, I was, I was trying to, it was like this big problem I was trying to solve. I didn't even come to the diagnosis until draft 10. Hmm. 
And I was like, oh, that's what it's all about. Yeah. But I like that. I like that there are no labels in here. I like that because you think you know what these things are. And I thought I knew what trauma was, but I didn't know what it looked like in real life. And now that I know what it looks like in real life, I'm starting to understand people whose behaviors have always troubled me or upset me. Mm -hmm. I have so much more understanding and compassion now for what they're going through. I see them completely differently now. So have you witnessed somebody in the kind of blackout rage that we experience with Mallory? Because that is yes. an indelible experience, isn't it? You probably never forget that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Wow. Yep. I mean, one of the other things that, that I appreciate about the way you've written Mallory is that she is so certain that her perceptions of how people see her are right. Mm -hmm. And yet, as the reader, I think we really begin to question whether she, you know, she only has a 180 degree view. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and I found myself doing that, which, which also increased my empathy for her. I found myself asking, or thinking there's so much Mallory doesn't see about the mm -hmm. way she's seen. Mm. What do you think of that? Yeah, that is a really profound realization. And I would have to say that is definitely uh, true for me also. And I think it's true for um, the people in my personal life who I know have gone through things like this. Um, and that's, that's the, the one thing that I wanted to do with this story is I wanted to show how difficult it is to change your mind mm -hmm. about what you think you deserve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you use the word deserve. Yeah. Give me some context for that. Well, when you're, when you're in a volatile relationship and there's, you know, that kind of dynamic happening where it's a system of punishment and rewards, you're always trying to be deserving. Mm -hmm. So that's, that becomes the pattern that's worn in your brain. You know, if I, if I want to X, Y, Z, I have to deserve it. And the issue specific to to Mallory and what that does for her over time being in the situation she's in. So her situation, she's, her story is a witness story. Mm -hmm. She is the witness to the abuse, to the violence. It wasn't directly physically perpetuated on her body. So that's part of why she thinks she should just be able to get over this, you know, and one of the things she does to kind of survive and to even the scales is she, she comes to believe that if she can suffer a little bit every day, if, if she can just carry that weight, that, that pain, if she can endure a little bit of injury every day, then the people in her life who she loves who are suffering won't have to hurt as much. So she's, she's trying to rebalance the scales 
because in her experience, it's unfair that some people have to, she's growing up in a violent household where she's seeing this abuse happen constantly and she wants to even the scales. So it's kind of a, a game she's playing in her head and that results in her becoming smaller and and less than who she is, who she could be. I think you've also brought us into, I think, w- what is a reality for people who have grown up in some kind of dysfunctional childhood. You think when you're choosing, you're choosing the opposite. But what you're really, I think, what the research, you know, the psychological research would tell us is that people who have experienced that are often choosing something that feels deeply familiar. It doesn't look mm-hmm. like the same thing, right, mm-hmm. on the surface, yeah. but it exactly. feels familiar. And I think Mallory's done that, hasn't she? Completely. That was something that um, in one of my early drafts, my one of my readers said, I just don't understand why Mallory keeps making bad choices. And that made me so (laughs) angry because because she's not. She's really not. She's trying so hard to to even the scales, you know, and, and, and to just, yeah, it really looks so different when you're deep, deep in it. And that's what I wanted to show. Um, if you'll read the excerpt and maybe just a, a little bit of explanation, as you've noted, Mallory has come in contact with a young woman who is has also been abused and is a runaway. She's helped to to help her get away. And she has been admitted to a hospital. And we meet Mallory on what one of the nights that she's trying to get into to see this young woman. What else would you say, Carol? Yes, this this is uh, the scene that happens after their first visit, mm-hmm. their first significant exchange. And Mallory at this point doesn't understand why she feels compelled to assume responsibility for this girl's safety. Right. Just She just does. She just feels like she understands her. And so she goes in to visit her at the hospital and they have they have their scene and then this is the chapter right after that scene. Mallory strode out of the hospital with militant strides, barreling past doctors and nurses and passing through the sliding glass doors to the outside. Tears smeared down her face from the wind and the cold and she jaywalked out to her junk heap parked at its expired meter alongside the waist-high rubble of snow. Snatching the ticket out from under the wiper blade, she got in to start the car. It would have to warm up. Her nose ran, her eyes watered, the ends of her fingertips throbbed. The car coughed and the belt whined. It turned with a decrepit squeal, no matter what brand of belt she tried, and she'd tried them all, every kind, switching them out. And still, it squealed. Anger rose in her like a burning star. She got out of the car and kicked at the tire turds caught by the wheel wells. 
blocks of blackened ice dropped into the street. It was a mistake to talk about all that for the first time in front of a vulnerable youth, a person in crisis and in a psych ward for Christ's sakes. What is wrong with you? She had just wanted the girl to feel understood, to feel that she wasn't alone. It humiliated her that she got so emotional. She didn't know why. She didn't know why everything made her so angry. Sometimes it felt like she had always been angry, even before things with Jared went bad, like she'd been born this way. She'd never identified what, specifically, made her so mad. Anger so vast, it obfuscated her. Anger occupying all the spaces in her skull until there was nothing left and no room to think. The only thing she could do was move her body to get it out. She kicked and smashed until all the grimy ice blocks were obliterated. Another car went past, slushing up snow and ice. The cuffs of her work pants had soaked through, streaked with sand, and her hands were red and numb because she neglected to put on her gloves. She was a little girl on a sidewalk with a chalk crayon trying to make sense of things, and she didn't have the tools or the knowledge or the training. When she'd worked with Mrs. Champagne, her therapist from high school, the woman always kept her voice the same. Nothing surprised her. Mrs. Champagne wore plastic frame glasses on a beaded chain and didn't try to hide her age. When Mallory said she didn't want anyone's help, Mrs. Champagne took her glasses off and said, Help isn't what you need, dear. What you need is mercy, and that is given unearned. Mallory needed mercy because she had attacked another student in class, and she remembered Mrs. Champagne saying that because she had never thought it was possible to receive anything unearned, let alone mercy. She'd been taught that to be deserving of food, shelter, love, you had to earn it. Maybe Shay believed the same thing. Maybe Shay didn't want anyone's help because she thought she didn't deserve it. Mallory could understand that. She got back in her car and drove the 60 minutes south toward Meyer Lake. Carol Dunbar reading from her new novel, A Winter's Rhyme. Um, you know, I was struck by the use of the word mercy in that in that scene because I, I feel like it's a, it's in some ways it's an old fashioned word and an old fashioned idea, mm. but boy, more of us could sure use it. <laughs> How do you define it? How did you choose it? Yeah, that came from a conversation I had with someone with another writer about humanity. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me as being something we don't talk about anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, I was really loved at the idea of receiving something, a gift like that, that was unearned. Just the idea of that, that we could give that to other people. They don't have to do anything to deserve it or to earn it. We could just, we could just give each other mercy. What would that look like? I mean, that's, in some ways, that's what makes up a community, isn't it? 
of a bunch of flawed people who all in some ways have something that perhaps they should atone for. And it is, if it's a real community, it's unearned grace, right? Yeah, yes. Because going back to what you said earlier, we can never understand all the things that go into a person's decision or what looks like a choice. Mm -hmm. We can never understand all of that. So if it's what we perceive as wrong or if it's harmful to them or harmful to other people, how do we, how do we hold the space for that lovingly and, and give this person a bit of mercy so that they can forgive themselves because that's really, until you can do that, you can't really begin to heal. So was that a process that you undertook about whatever this this part of your life was in the early 20s, in your early 20s? I mean, was there some forgiving that needed to be done? Yeah, I... I had always, all the um, relationships that I had uh, during my early 20s, my, my boyfriend, my best friend, my best friend's family, none of those people are in my life now. Hmm. Those relationships are lost to me. And I've always felt such regret and, and heaviness about that. I've always wished I could go back and explain to them what I was going through, but I did not have the words to explain what I was going through. And I thought it was something wrong with me. I thought it was, I carried the weight of, of the blame. And, and this is a story about pointing the finger inward. I, I, it's not about pointing the finger outward. But to understand now what was going on with me, and this is true for Mallory, too. I'm able to have compassion for that person in her 20s, really, for the first time in my life. And that's a powerful thing to, to be able to, un, to, to look on behaviors and things that, that maybe you don't like about yourself and have compassion for, for that and understand why, why you did those things in a whole new light. Yeah, Carol, is it a, I mean, do you think it could be explained? Because I hear you when you say those relationships are lost to me and there is no 20 years later explanation that would suffice. You you just have to live with the loss of it. I think that if I were to I like to think that if I were to run into those people again and explain, you know, I, I was going through this intense, I, I had PTSD and I didn't understand that that's what it was. I, I think they would understand and be open to hearing, you know, especially as an adult. Um, but I don't know how I would encounter those people again, you know. Um, but I, I, I think that's why I wrote this novel if it can reach not just these people in my life, but if it can reach anyone who doesn't understand the behavior of someone they care about, 
if it could help shed light on that and change their understanding of what's really going on, then then it, it's all all worth it. it it'd be a, it'd be a wonderful thing. That's why I wrote this book. Carol Dunbar's new novel is titled A Winter's Rhyme, and she joined us today from the Twin Ports. Carol, thank you. Thank you, Carrie.